Hi there, this is Bob Eubanks, and you're listening to Fab Four Free For All. But doesn't everybody? And welcome to another edition of the Fab Four Free For All, the all Beatles and related podcast. And uh, I am your moderator for tonight's show, Mitch Axelrod. And joining me, as they always do, are my good friends, Tony Trigardo. Hi, folks. And Rob Leonard. Hello, everyone. And tonight we are really excited to uh, feature someone on the show. We have just uh, read her book. It is a really good book. It's called My Ticket to Ride, How I Ran Away to England to Meet the Beatles and Got Rock and Roll Banned in Cleveland. Um, It's by author Janice Mitchell, and we are excited to have her here tonight. Hi, Janice. Welcome to Fab Four Free For All. Hi. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited to be here. Wow. That's more than other people are say to us. So that's good. You're you're off to a good start. Thank you. Do we call you Jan or Janice, just so we know? Uh, Jan is good. Okay, Jan. Great. So the book is is actually a very easy read. And I don't say that derogatorily. I just say I, I sat down one day and just was so enthralled by it that I couldn't put it down. And yeah. and that's that's a really great sign of a, of a really you know good book. So I want to talk a little bit about the beginning, because I think your your background, which you set up a lot in this book, uh, is very important to the story. So can you describe growing up in the in the 50s prior to hearing the Beatles, what was your life like? Mm. Well, my life was uh, it was a little on the rough side because I was the oldest of three children with two alcoholic parents who basically felt that partying and drinking was more important than taking care of their kids. And I wound up as the uh, the oldest trying to make sure that we were safe and try and make sure we had some food and try and avoid the uh, harsh life with uh, the parents when they would come home. They were, they were not always, you know, very nice to us. So there was a, lar- a large element of trying to stay out of the way. Yeah. And uh, that's what I did. So, but I loved music. So, and, but I was left alone a lot to my own devices. And one day I was wandering around in the basement of our apartment building in Cleveland, and there was a, a piano in a room. And I went over and I sat down and I discovered that when you pressed one of the white keys, it made a sound. <laughs> and I loved it. I found myself uh, finding all the uh, notes for um, some Shirley Temple song, you know, and I was delighted. It took me away from my terrible home life, you know, and being hungry all the time and wondering what was going to happen next. So music made a big impression on me. Fortunately, uh, when I was seven years old, my mother decided to uh, leave us. She had some kind of side boyfriend and they went to Chicago from Cleveland and she just abandoned her children and her husband. So I was already staying at my great aunt and uncle's house and my uncle Mac who is, was uh, prominent in my life. He was my only ally. He decided that I should just stay there. So that was the beginning of uh, the good part of my life. Yeah. Hmm. Tony, you had mentioned, uh, we were, Tony and I were talking off, off mic about uh, your uncle. And Tony, you had related it to John Lennon. Yeah, it was, you know, 
Jan, when I was reading the book and you were talking about your uncle being your ally, it reminded me of John and yeah. Uncle George, you yeah. know, Mimi's uh, husband, being his true friend and his true ally. And, and you know, Mimi was a uh, different kind of soul than, than your aunt was. But, but uh, it was interesting. I saw that parallel there when you talked about having that ally who you also lost unexpectedly. You know. Oh, yeah. He was, he was the best person in my life ever. And, uh, you know, we had, so he just accepted me as, as a, as a child, you know, and we right. had fun and joked around and read the funnies together. And, um, and he was the school crossing guard for my elementary school, St. Anne's. Mm -hmm. So I would be walk, I would walk up to the corner and I'd say, that's my uncle. I was so proud of him. And he would be crossing all us kids and I'd be beaming with pride at how wonderful he was. And uh, he was he was getting ready for work one morning. Uh, it was March 1963. And um, I heard my great aunt yelling, wake up, wake up. Mm -hmm. I immediately ran from my bedroom, tried to see what was going on. She wouldn't let me. Apparently, he he had just collapsed and died right there wow. while he was getting ready. So, wow. you know, it was so it was had broke my heart ripped my heart out and um now he's gone now i don't have anybody and it was very hard it it was i found it interesting and, and mitch and i were talking about what you know my thoughts were when when reading the book is that beetles aside it's a it's a sociological study it's a sociological book about yeah. you know how this affected you and it's it's also interesting too because we we get stuck sometimes in that image of the 50s as always being father knows best and ozzy and harriet and and you know rightfully you know you you're telling your true story your real story and it it pulls you out of that you know that ozzy and harriet world and and into that reality that you were dealing with in that, in that period well, I think you're right about that. And I, I find it, as I look back, quite shocking that uh, children were treated that way, you know, by two parents, two dysfunctional parents, and allowed to just fend for themselves. Uh, no one really intervening, except for my great aunt, mm. but, you know, who did try. Yeah. And, um, yeah. you know, children just need one person to reach out and try and help them. Right. And um, that makes the biggest difference in the world. So I was fortunate. And plus, I was a tough little kid. Let me tell you. <laughs> well, now we, was, didn't, we didn't even say where you were from, though. You, you, you're from Cleveland, obviously. Cleveland. Yeah. yeah in, inner, tough, yeah. inner city Cleveland. I was tough. <laughs> Cleveland yeah. rocks. <laughs> Cleveland rocks. Well, I have a question uh, concerning Cleveland. Uh, one of the things when I started to read the book is I thought of this is sort of a um, a side book, so to, of uh, Dave Swenson's book, which I'm sure you've read, uh, 1964, 1966, when the Beatles showed up in Cleveland, he wrote a whole book about it. And I sort of see, the, see your book as sort of a sort of a side, I don't want to say sequel, but a, a side a story to what it's Dave did. Yes. Maybe a prequel. Or, yeah. or yes, and I thought about that. I was wondering, did, have you talked to Dave and had you read Dave's books? I have Dave's book, and I don't think of my book as any kind of sequel or prequel or anything like that. Because well, there's our, a lot of Cleveland in it. 
you know, well, our, yeah, but our stories are totally, totally different. Absolutely. He just writes about something. And I'm telling you my my uh, my true story that story that nobody else has. That's yeah. I'm telling you everything that's a true story. Mm-hmm. That all the things that really truly happened to me hadn't happened to anybody else. So yeah, I'm aware of him, but no, it's totally different. It's two separate books. Right. You, you you mentioned uh, <clears throat> St. Anne's. I think that's important in the story. Not exactly St. Anne's, but um, a, a Catholic girl growing up in Cleveland or, go, or a girl going to Catholic school in Cleveland um, enjoying music. I mean, what were the restrictions put on you, if any, by, by, by school? Well, in Catholic school, uh, when I, I was gra- I graduated from St. Anne's, that was elementary school, and then I went to um, Ursuline Academy of the Sacred Heart, all-girls Catholic school. And there were restrictions on every single thing you can think of. Like, there was no talking in the hallways. Uh, walking in the hallways, there was one single file line going in one direction and another in the other direction with a nun stationed at either end. Wow. And we and in our uniforms, we wore blazers. Only one pocket could be could be open. And those carried these little white cards that were called demerit cards. <laughs> so a nun didn't have to tell you what infraction you had committed. She would just simply hold out her hand, look at you in your eyes, and you knew automatically to reach in your pocket and place a demerit card in her hand. And that was it. So there was no, you know, no nothing going on in school except uh, obedience. That's what it was all about. Yes. <laughs> yes submission. Really. Yes. Yes. Or, pun- or be punished. Yeah. You, you just had to use that pocket for something else, didn't you? In, yeah. The inside pocket. Yeah. I thought that was pretty clever. <laughs> yeah. You want to tell the folks what you used it for? <laughs> all right. Um, so I discovered that the inside pocket of our blazers, there was no rules about that whatsoever. So I said, uh-huh, I can slip my little transistor radio in the pocket <laughs> and run the, um, the earplug cord up my sleeve on the inside, put the earplug in my ear, and just simply lean my head against my, the palm of my hand. And that's, that's how I failed geometry. <laughs> I think that's how a lot of us failed a lot of subjects <laughs> radio. Believe me, you're not the only one. <laughs> and that is pretty smart. And you couldn't have gum, right? No gum chewing. Oh my gosh. Are you kidding? No gum, no lipstick, uh, no long hair that was untied, skirts were below your knee. Like there was you practically did, you, no, you, you no laughing. the lipstick thing, though, right? Oh, the lipstick thing, yes. That was fun. My my best friend, my best friend Jerry and I, we decided to that we could wear lipstick and that the nuns probably wouldn't notice. We go, (laughs) we're not in the homeroom for ten minutes when we're called up to the mother superior's office. She, we sit down. This is big now. We know what we've done wrong and we've gotten caught and we're sitting there, and there she is. She's like looks bigger than life, you know, like from outer space with her black and white, you know, outfit. And she just folds her hands in front of her and says, what is that stuff on your lips? <laughs> Lipstick, sister. And why are you wearing that? Because um, we don't want to get chap lips. <laughs> she says, have you never heard of candle wax? 
oh. thinking, oh no, she's going to pour candle wax on our lips. Oh, God. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it was it was tough. She she kind of let us off easy, you know, kind of with a warning for some reason, which I don't know why. But um, she dismissed us. But like the merit card, huh? But but I did notice though, Jan, that in in the book, I mean, despite all of that, yeah, um, you you talk about your, you know, sort of your personal relationship with God, your faith. Yes. And, and, but, it, and I'm not giving anything, but by the book's end, we sort of aren't sure how that will carry. And I don't want to get too personal, but how did that carry forward for you after that experience, after what went on? And, you know, did you still, did you still have the, the, the firmness in your faith that you'd had? Because you, you do talk about in the book about going back and talking to God and sent clear questioning. And, you know, so did that, was that something that, uh, how did that change for you after that experience? Or did that stay with you after the experience? Well, I consider myself very fortunate to have been uh, born, raised in Catholicism, you know, a strong faith. A lot of children don't have that. Yeah. So they grow up with nothing. I feel bad about that because parents say, well, let them choose when they get older. But mm -hmm. what happens is they have nothing to choose from. So I was very fortunate. And it, that's what saved me really through all of it because I always seemed to live across the street from my school and my church and I could always run over there. And those were the days when the church doors were open all the time, yes. you know, so yeah. it was a much different era. Yeah, sure. So, sure. you know, as most Catholics do, as they grow up, they become very disappointed in Catholicism mm. and they're back, but you can't turn your back very easily on that very strong spiritual connection Absolutely. which always stayed with me always even right. the, the day yeah good to um i have a question concerning why did you wait so long to write the book it's a great story why did it, you have to wait to this far along in your life to write the story i get asked that question quite a bit so the reason is because after we returned my marty and i uh, to Cleveland, where we were really punished. And we really shouldn't have been punished the way we were. Uh, they were very heavy-handed with us. But in those days, Cleveland was more or less a police state. In Cleveland Heights, where we were living, um, the police chief decided that, you know, this you can't have girls doing this sort of thing. Girls stepping outside the box like this, you know, doing what they want. This was totally not acceptable. So uh, we had to go to court and uh, the judge took it upon himself to fill the juvenile court jury box with newspaper men. There weren't newspaper women, but there were newspaper men because he needed to make a statement. So we're there for our proceeding and the judge said that he had attended that same Beatles concert that we went to September 15th, 1964 at public auditorium. And I'm there sitting there thinking, oh good, he's a Beatle fan. But that's not where we were going with this. <laughs> he had taken his daughter there. He was shocked by what he saw. You know, all of the, I would say 90% of the crowd, girls running up towards the stage, all out of control, going crazy, doing things that nobody ever thought they would do. And he was so shocked. 
that uh, he made sure that he had our case. He said that he that any parent who did not accompany their child to the Beatles concert should hang their head in shame. <laughs> and this just showed the, uh, the evil, you know, influence of rock and roll music, mm. and how it could lead to riots and drugs. And actually, he wasn't wrong. <laughs> but, um, you know, he pretty much made it clear, you know, that we, we were to be punished. So uh, he did the next morning. The uh, mayor of Cleveland, Mayor Loker, piggybacked the judge and said this type of music does not serve the community. And he banned rock and roll and Beatlemania in Cleveland. Ridiculous. So the next day after our court date, Rolling Stones were to appear at the public auditorium, the same place where the Beatles had their concert, one that we went to, it was highly successful. It was sold out for the Rolling Stones, all 10,000 seats sold out. But because of what the judge and the mayor announced to the public, parents were not going to allow their children to go. Mm. So it was just the first few rows had, that were filled. And uh, I read later on, the Rolling Stones were absolutely furious. Of course. And their, their manager demanded an apology from the judge and the mayor, which, of course, you know, do you think he got that? No, there was no apology. So besides being told at school, when we went back to school, that I wasn't permitted to talk about this with anybody. And if anybody had approached me and wanted to talk about it, I was to take their name and turn their name over to the principal, which, you know, I'm not ever doing that. Right. Wow. And I couldn't talk about it at home. Uh, that was forbidden. Uh, everything about it, everywhere I went was just, I couldn't talk anymore about it. And especially after what had happened with the Rolling Stones and, you know, Beatlemania and everything being banned in Cleveland, most, some people said, you know, you just really need to put this behind you and forget about it and move forward. So I, I did. Wow. Wow. So, so you should probably. Well, I'm well, so sorry. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. I just, why did it take so long after that? I mean, oh, I see. you know, it's, it's almost 60 years. I mean, you could have done it for the 50th anniversary or whatever. Well, what, what made you do the book at this point in your life? I never planned on writing a book. No. But what happened was, um, I just got used to living with it as my own personal memory, right. you know, and I still had newspaper stories tucked away that I would look at and I enjoyed my memories of it. And I was satisfied with that. And I thought it was enough. However, in 2016, I'm listening to the radio. And I had the same experience, life changing experience that I had the first time I heard the Beatles saying, I want to hold your hand uh, in in December of 1963, where I was completely transformed, became an instant Beatle maniac. My leg was never the same after that. So in 2016, I had the radio on and there was Paul McCartney singing. He was going to be doing his one-on-one -on -one concert in Cleveland. And his voice and his song and the music just hit me in the very same way. And I said, wow, you know, I can finally talk about my story, what I did, my adventure. Everybody's dead. Nobody cares. I can't hurt anybody. Right. So I'm free to talk about it. Right. Hmm. So I did. I talked about it, told my story to somebody who said, wow, 
That is a great story. I got to put you in touch with my friend in Canada who does beetle merchandising and beetle books. And, you know, he probably wants to hear about it too. So I did, told him the entire story. And he said, that's probably the greatest story I ever heard for a beetle story. He said, all you have to do is write it down. I said, what do you mean write it down? He said, don't you understand? You have a book to write now. You have to tell your story. Hmm. I said, oh, okay. So I started writing my book. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I'm sorry, Mitch. One thing that we should probably point out and let the fans know, because uh, we we don't want to, as I was saying to Mitch off mic jam, we don't want to give away the farm, but we should probably let folks know what the the issue was all about and well we'll, why don't we why don't we go slowly just through the journey how's that yeah because we we already told the end result but i'd like to get in again without giving away the whole farm we could still let people know exactly what happened so you you had mentioned you were totally transformed by hearing i want to hold your hand yeah and in the book it what struck me um you know i'm from a divorced family i i'm still had a lot of love but um what's and and the beatles were such uh, such an, a comfort to me, um, whether it was listening to them or seeing them on TV, uh, I could always turn back to the Beatles and feel comfort. You And I, it struck me, you said something in the book about, you know, hearing I want to hold your hand. Um, for most kids, I'm saying this, for most girls at that age, it was like pseudo-sexual. But for you, it really wasn't. You said that you made a great statement about, you know, you just really wanted someone to hold your hand. Yeah. And that, that was, that struck me so well. I mean, that they were your comfort food, I guess. They were, you know, and that message, it just went straight to my heart. And I just thought how wonderful that must be. You know, I had a pretty loveless childhood and I thought how wonderful that must be. And I'm imagining what that's like to have somebody hold your hand and it must mean how much they care about you. Wow. So that's why that's one of the things that just got to me right away about the Beatles, that and the happiness that I felt just listening to that song and listening to their music. I just felt happy and like a new person and there's life there. And I wanted that. Hmm. Did What were your, your first impressions of each Beatle? When you when you when you finally got to see them, not the not the concert, but, you know, when you saw them on TV or wherever you saw them. They were just the most beautiful people I ever saw in my life. I mean, there they were. It was actually there was four of them, John, Paul, George and Ringo. And they were all equally as wonderful. I mean, every girl would choose one. It was just like a natural thing to do. But, you know, what? it wouldn't matter which one you chose. I remember back then, Ringo was super popular, yeah. super. And girls would walk around, you know, Ringo for president. And <laughs> um, Paul is so cute, you know, and all that. And so everything about them was just incredible. Their hair was mm. beautiful, their clothes. And plus, they were just so well-mannered and so talented. And just everything about them was so appealing, you know, and their songs were all about love and relationships and they weren't afraid in their songs to talk about, talk about things, you know, it was wonderful. I love 
loved them. I loved looking at them. They were beautiful. Since since we could never have this perspective, Jen, it's it's I always enjoy hearing uh, people who were you know like young female Beatle fans at the time. But there's that that um, idea, as you said, where you looked at it sort of you know innocently. I want to hold your hand was really that. So all of the all the all of the songs once they start to get a little a little deeper about the real interpersonal relationships, did it for a young female fan at the time? Does it does it make you curious that you want to experience? Do you think? Oh, I wish I could be with one of the Beatles. I wish I could know what this is like to share with them. Or did it make you want to think? You know, because when you when you had your experience that you have in Liverpool, when you meet you know you meet a young man in Liverpool. You know, it still seemed to have a, a real air of innocence to it, uh, which is very sweet, you know. So I guess I'm just trying to get that picture of that that feeling as a, as a young girl and all the depth in those songs and what it was what it was feeling like for you as as they grew up. Well, it was really about the music. Yeah. How the music made made me feel, you know, just so happy. It was happy music, beautiful music, and there was nothing bad about any of it. You know, like you said, it was innocent. It was all very innocent. It was perfect because that was still an age of innocence. Absolutely. You know, it was not the swinging 60s yet or anything right. like that. You know, most of the girls were still wearing their Catholic school uniforms, you know, and we were just loved everything about them. And we, we wanted to sing their songs with them. We would make up our little stories, you know, and... <laughs> It was it was just really adorable. So when and you I heard, think, I'm sorry. So when you heard, "If I Fell in Love with You" and John singing it was, that's me. <laughs> I guess right. I mean, you was know, there, I uh, never, I didn't relate to it that way. You interesting, know? interesting. I did not. The joy. It was purely the joy. Purely the joy, and I that's just cool. wanted to. I wanted to go where it happened, and you know where that type of music was, was born. I wanted. Yeah to be there where it was born and I wanted to live it as it was happening. You I, you wanted to go to the source. You wanted to go I wanted to be rooms. I wanted to be happy. And that's where happiness seemed to come from. That's wow. what, that's what it was all about. So you there was a DJ that played prominently in your story, uh Harry Martin. Yes. And w- when you read the book and please don't take this the wrong way, but I didn't know whether he was I I always I sort of didn't always get the impression of his innocence, um, even though it may have seemed innocent. Looking back on him, you know, without getting too personal, without getting too much into it, um, you know, he was there for you and he helped you in a lot of ways. But uh, do you think he was as innocent as, as maybe, you know, you, you might have thought he was back then when you were 16? I didn't, I, you know, I never experienced anything weird like that before. And but something inside me knew that there was some stuff about him that wasn't quite right. No. I didn't know what it was. Mm. Um, but I don't think he was, you know, as just, oh, let me help you kind of guy. I think he, I think he probably had some other ideas, but I don't okay. know anything about what those might have been at the time. But I knew that he made me feel uncomfortable sometimes. He never did anything, you know, so right. it was, seemed okay. But he that did. Was, so I could just tell no, you. I was going to say that was, and that was key, though, too. You know, Mitch. I mean, even if, even if he may have had some kind of idea going on in there, 
you know, Jan being who she was and probably being an innocent, you know, an innocent person and him picking up on that. It might have, you know, just made him feel like, you know what, I just want to help this this kid and what she's dealing with. You know, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, because I didn't want anything from him. It was just fun. I mean, the <clears throat> Rolling Stones. I mean, wow, you know. <laughs> I was, well, yeah, was going to ask you about that next because you before you even got to see the Beatles live, you were lucky enough to see in June of 64, you were lucky enough to see the Stones on the Mike Douglas show. Oh, oh my God. God. That was just purely a thing that just happened. It was I didn't even plan it to happen. I would never have known. I would be hanging out with the Rolling Stones in their dressing room at the Mike Douglas show. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of wild because a lot of people don't even know that they were on the Mike Douglas show. I know. <laughs> I know they were. It was their first tour in the United States. They were on a bus tour, right? At the time. That's unbelievable. So what, how'd you, how'd you manage to get there to get into that? Well, that was Harry Martin. He told me that uh, he said the, the Rolling Stones are going to be on the Mike Douglas show today. He says, get dressed up and come alone and get down here to the studio and I'll get you in. I was out the door like a shot. <laughs> got down there. When he brought me into the studio, this was completely empty. And then he left. He was doing a Harry Martin was doing a record promo at a department store in downtown Cleveland. So I'm sitting there like, wow, now I'm going to see the Rolling Stones. I had their album and I, I knew all their songs too. You know, they were becoming more popular, of course. So then this gigantic man about the size of a refrigerator walks up to me and says, where's your ticket? And I said, oh, I don't need a ticket. Harry Martin, you know, the disc jockey brought me in here. He said, I don't care who brought you in here. If you don't have a ticket, you're out. Ugh. So <laughs> he pretty much showed me the door. And I'm standing out in the hallway, just completely in disbelief that this had happened, refusing to move. I wasn't leaving. I see a door. I walk over, I turn the knob, I pull, and the door opens, and I walk in, and the door closes behind me. And I just keep walking down this narrow hallway. And this man runs up to me, and he says, oh, are you on the show today? Meaning the Mike Douglas show. And I said, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you, it was amazing that at that young age and at that time you knew the two number one rules of getting around in rock and roll shows never leave the building and always agree when someone asks if you're part of the show that was, <laughs> you, you hit them both really? perfectly jen <laughs> he says well let me show you where your dressing room is and i just follow him along <laughs> And we get to a hallway and he points down the hallway and he says, well, yours is down there somewhere. Just you'll find it. Thank you. And I just start walking. I see and I real, I know I'm backstage at Mike Douglas show and I'm looking in each room and there's people in some rooms and there's like big bright light bulbs. and They got snacks and pop and everything. And I see the end of the hallway and I'm thinking, I wonder what I'm going to do when I get down there. I get to the end and I turn to the left, look in the last uh, dressing room. And who do I see? Bill Wyman sitting on a chair with his guitar. And he looks at me and he says, oh, are you on the show today? No. <laughs> are you a singer? No. Are you with the radio show? No. 
Oh, you're a fan. Yes. So apparently I can say two words, yes or no. <laughs> he invites me to come in and I sit down next to him on his right-hand side. And I look around and there they are. Uh, Keith Richards, Brian Jones. Wow. Charlie Watts and Mick Jagger. He had placed a chair on top of a desk and he was sitting on the chair like a king. You know, this shouldn't surprise anybody, right? Wow. And there I am. He looks down at me. And he says, <laughs> I'm tired, hungry, sexually unfulfilled. <laughs> I'm just like myself, what, what, what? <laughs> I have no idea what to say. <laughs> so yeah, I just say nothing. That was my best move. Say yep. nothing. Yep. You can't get no satisfaction. <laughs> no, I think that's that's where the song came from. Right? That moment. Wait, from you? No, <laughs> but that was it. That was exactly it. that was it. Yeah, yep. it was the inspiration for the song. That, that was the inspiration. It's whoever moment. served Paul McCartney those scrambled <laughs> eggs that gave him yesterday. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. But it, it is funny though because it kind of you know if you think about it, guys, and you know, and Janet, it sort of is funny because the. The myth was always, especially, you know, here you were, Jana, uh, you know, an innocent Catholic schoolgirl, but you were also, aside from <laughs> listening to the Beatles, which was, you know, on the cusp, you were listening to those dirty Rolling Stones. And it, it's very funny because, you know, we always hear the myth of, you know, you'd never let your daughter date one of the Stones, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, but it is funny to hear that, you know, the same way you were picking up the Beatles records that you had gotten the first Stones album. It was just part of that musical experience at the time. And it wasn't, well, you know. I was right smack dab at the beginning in the middle of the controversy, Beatles or Stones? Beatles yeah. or Stones? Right. Like you were supposed to choose, you know? Right. But I was right there. <laughs> but but uh, Bill, who, as we know later on in life, had a propensity for younger women, uh, <laughs> He, he actually wanted you to come. He wanted you to come on tour and and, and be with him, correct? Uh, yeah, he wanted me to come with him. Yeah, no that's problem. pretty wild. So, what if you would have went? That would have been a very different book. <laughs> well, quite honestly, that was an impulsive move on his part. Uh, even though I was impulsive in different ways, I was also a planner. Like. That would have required a lot of planning, you know, to go with Bill Wyman. And I was already all set, you know, for my other plan, much bigger. Yeah. Wow. Well, talk about that. Well, well, first, well, Mitch, it was that question I was talking to you about in the car before. I mean, Jan, it, it's funny. I, it's, a, it's a hard question to try to word. But because of your circumstances, your surrounding, the things that were going on in your life, had, had the Beatles never existed, do you think that there still would have been, whether it was another another musical experience, another, would there have been something that that may have, have pulled you away anyway to have to have to get away and, and be away from where you were and make that plan? Because, you know, the plan was a, was a brilliant one. You're going to go work for Epstein. That was a pretty smart <laughs> thing to de determine. That's what you could do. But, you know, you and we'll let the book explain what happens there. But but do you think you would have wanted to somehow get away anyway because of what was going on in your life? I can't answer that question mm -hmm. because um, the Beatles were the main influence that they 
propelled me to feel that I could find uh, the life I wanted to have someplace else. And I don't think anybody else could have done that for me. It's, yeah. it's so funny because Tony was saying, and I'm giving total credit to Tony on this one, but he was saying right. that if you fell in love with the Four Seasons, uh, <laughs> what are you going to do? You're going to go to Jersey? I mean, you know, <laughs> I'm going to be in Hoboken, bye-bye, you know, you drive there, you don't have to take a plane. <laughs> oh, that's funny. And who knows who you would have had, who you would have wanted to go work for at that point over in yeah, Jersey. Exactly. Work for Sinatra, who knows? Well, my question is, you know, you, you go to London and Liverpool and it was, part of the Beatles and the whole British invasion is that they came from Liverpool and London. Yeah. And it was part of the story. And I was wondering, you know, like you didn't say, well, I'm going to go to Manchester to go see the Stones. Right. Because, right. you know, they didn't really push Manchester the way they pushed London and Liverpool. What was what was the influence of those two cities on you? And and back then, also, there wasn't an Internet to go searching about where to find places to live there or hotels or whatever. So I'm just curious when you heard about Liverpool, London with the Beatles, especially um, what what do you think about those cities? from all the way in Cleveland? Well, one of the things that we had to do was we, first, like you said, there was no technology back then. So there was no internet, there was no Google. If you wanted to find out about things, mainly you go to the library. But for kids like me, you had to get those teenage magazines. Mm. And at that time, there were Beatles special magazines. It cost more than the other magazines. They were 50 cents. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so in one of the stories I was reading, I was over at my friend's house. We were, of course, listening to Beatles records. Uh, and I'm reading one of the magazine articles that said, the Beatles could hang out in Soho. And no one bothered them. This was like a total revelation to me. I said, oh, my gosh, look at this. How do they put this in a magazine where everybody can read it? The Beatles hang out in Soho and nobody bothers them. So I said, that's where we have to go. We're going to Soho. So that was the plan for that. And then, of course, Liverpool, a must, because that's where the Beatles came from. That's where they were born. That's where they grew up. That's where they learned, you know, to play guitars and music and everything. So it had to be both. You know, the, uh, the experience of the live concert. Now, your plan, and, and again, we'll let the book speak for itself in terms of the plan. We don't want to give it away because you do have a cohort that we're not mentioning, Marty, who definitely helped you uh, financially and, and emotionally at that time. And uh, I think people need to read the book because I want to focus more on you because this is obviously your story. But um, the the experience of the Beatles in concert, you mentioned they were at the public arena. And nowadays, now you get on Ticketmaster, you have to wait in a queue and you for a thousand dollars, you can get tickets back when I was going to concerts and I'm 60. Uh, but back when I was going to concerts, we had to wait in line at, at a place that sold tickets just like you did. And you ended up in the front row. How did that happen? OK, good question. So when we found out that the Beatles were actually coming to Cleveland for their you know concert on September 15th. Uh, the radio station WHK was announcing it all the time. And the newspaper had an article about how you could get, a, get tickets to the, see the show. And what, the, what they wanted to do was to prevent some of the chaos that they had seen in other cities. They came up with a plan 
you would send in a four cent postcard dressed exactly as they showed it in the newspaper. And then your return information on the back, you would send in your card, the card would get fed into the IBM computer, you know, one of those giant ones from the day. And the card, the computer would number your cards and then it would spit out the winning uh, postcard. And Public Auditorium only had 10,000 seats. And they had over 100,000 postcards sent in. So it was going to be tough to try and get your postcard selected. But if it did, then you would receive a letter in the mail with no return address because they were afraid people would steal those letters. Yeah. And in the, in the envelope would be a letter telling you the date and where to go to purchase two tickets. So I got a letter. So now that's what determined when we were actually leaving. Okay, so the plan was that I, I believe it was the morning of June 9th, the box office was going to open at Public Auditorium. So I said to my friend, all right, I got to be first on line. And this is what my plan is. So I told her my plan for what we needed to do in order to be first on line, which meant probably being one of the first kids ever to stand in line all night long. Yeah. So fortunately, there was police there. And one of the police officers said, well, there's a lot of kids here tonight. I better start taking down names. So he wrote down number one, Dennis Hawkins. That was me. So that was a fortunate move. Because How many days before were you there? What? Were you there just one night before? Yeah, just one night. Wow. That's still... And again, you didn't have any parents to stop you, so to speak. Well, my friend and I, we made up a little plan of deception, actually, that worked out fine for the moment for that night. (laughs) Right. Um, Yeah, let's not give um, that away. But so how did how'd you get the tickets? You you waited and you finally got them? Because I know I know there was a bunch of people, like you said, online waiting, too. Well, as the the, uh, morning approached were kids who just started pushing everybody aside. Obviously not Catholic school girls. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, I was with, I said, wait a minute, this isn't fair. I got to find that policeman because I'm number one on the list and I need to buy my tickets first. I was very determined. I found him and I said, look, you know, all these kids pushed me out of my place. And you wrote down my name. I'm number one on the list. He said, Yes, you are. And he wow. escorted me over to the box office. And he said, this young lady is, is first on the line to buy her tickets. Wow. So <laughs> the box office lady, she, it seemed to take forever for her to read the letter. Like she didn't know what was going to be in it, right? <laughs> exactly. And she said, she said, well, what, what tickets would you like? Again, yeah. I'm appalled. Like, how does she not know? I want front row center. Okay. What tickets would you like? Yeah, really, seriously. I'd like 19th row all the way on the left. (laughs) (laughs) What planet are you from? (laughs) She was a Stones fan, Jan. Just, yeah, just. Well, to be be quite fair, you know, depending on how much it was, $3 or $4, if you didn't have the extra money, you'd have to go. No, it was probably what she was asking was what price range. Price point. Oh, my God. That's right. Well, I was prepared for the most two to buy two of the most expensive tickets at six dollars and fifty cents each. Wow. So that's how it hundred for front row. How it happened. Now you can't get a candy bar for six fifty at a venue (laughs) to anyone. Amazing. (laughs) 
Amazing. And you were at one of the only shows that were stopped. I know. I mean, that must have been. A, I mean, was it disheartening to you when it when they stopped the show? Did you think they weren't coming back? Well, who I was really angry at was all the unruly girls. I couldn't believe what they were doing, messing up everything that we had worked so hard and waited so long for. Those public, they were, school, those public school kids. They were public school kids for sure. Public <laughs> school kids wouldn't act like that. Just think of the demerit cards. You know? Well, you should have had the nuns as the security guards. None of that would have happened. I know? have to tell you, I went to Catholic high school and it, the Catholic high school I went to, it would it, if that had happened at an event, people would have said, oh, it's all the kids from the Catholic school. That's <laughs> <So, laughs> all those boys. Especially if you were Irish, Irish Catholic. Irish right? Catholic. Yeah. Exactly. So did you did you hear all the music or was it just drowning out with the screaming? Are you kidding? All you could hear was the screaming. You couldn't hear one single note. Even up front. Even I was we were like 10 feet, you know, from the stage. All we could see was the boys. Oh, my God. You know, and them singing and playing their instruments. I knew all the words to every song anyway. So I was perfectly satisfied just being that near to them. No camera. Well, you know, we didn't really take pictures back. Not like today. People take pictures of like everything, a taco and a plate. You got to take a picture, right? <laughs> That's very really, important. Very important. What I'm eating right now is very important. Yeah. But back then we just lived, you know, we didn't record everything. We lived it. Yeah. That's what we did. Janice, when you were putting together the book, what came, what did you come across that you sort of have gotten um, about your story? Not just personally, but from the Beatles, you know, being a Beatle fan or, or from that time. Well, fortunately, I had, uh, you know, I had a lot of evidence for my story. As if you yeah. read the book, you would have seen, yeah. Yeah. you know, the headlines from all the news stories, international. Yes. So I had saved some, you know, from back then. But then when I was starting the book, I said, there's a lot more. There has to be. And I started uh, finding articles uh, and learning some things that I had forgotten and some things I didn't know. And one of the things that I didn't know that came from a newspaper story uh, from the British Library uh, was a story that appeared over there about when we were, my friend and I were at the United States Embassy, where we were uh, forced to have a press conference because of the whole Beatles thing. You know, the, the news people were just totally insane over there, you know, just trying to get at us. And um, I was begging the U.S. Embassy guy, you know, it came, came clear that we were going to be going home. Couldn't you at least just call the Beatles? You know everybody. We could just talk to them on the phone. And he said, mm. no, no, no. But what I learned was that Brian Epstein actually... Paul McCartney was on standby to come over and say hello and goodbye. <laughs> wow. And uh, the embassy guy, the embassy people said, no, I never knew that. Wow. Never wow. knew that just to a few years ago. You know how upset I was as if it was just happened, you know, with horrible worse. Yeah. You had it's a sense of betrayal, I think, in a way I could imagine, Jen, just from, you know, especially, you know, one of the really fascinating aspects of the book, is the yin and the yang of how you were treated over there when your adventure came to a close versus how you were treated in your own country. 
I know. And, and that, and that is just, uh, you know, <clears throat> I mean, overall, it, it's just, it's just a really fascinating story on so many different levels, but just to, to see that cultural difference there brought to the mm-hmm. fore so much, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and to then question how much of things really changed sadly too. Well, also Tony, I think, and, and Janice, I'd like to get your opinion on this. There's a lot of control that they're doing on you and your friend um, about, you know, not seeing the Beatles or, you know, different things with the the schools. And Mm -hmm. there's, there's, there seems to be a control thing as well as what Tony was talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they felt we needed to be punished. Yeah. Because girls didn't do stuff like that, but we did. You know, the funny thing is, and I, I, I wanted to ask you, <clears throat> excuse me, as soon as I read what you were planning, because you said you're a planner um, and you told you planned, you know, go in there the night before for the tickets and all that. Mm-hmm. But you're, the plan that I think if I'm not mistaken, I may have the date wrong, but I think the Beatles played September 15th yes. uh, of 64. And your plan to go to, quote, Beatle Land, and we'll let the book explain that. But your your plan to go to Beatle Land was on September 16th. Yes. Uh, right. Why did I mean, where'd that date come from? I knew, you know, you, the Beatles had to be on tour. They were until at least September 30th or so uh, or the 24th or whatever it was. How did you come up with that date to leave the day after the morning after? Yeah, well, that's because everything was in place except for when we were leaving. And we wouldn't know that until we learned if we had. You know, if I got my letter and we were going to be able to get the tickets because that was right. not a set thing. You right. Know, I could have not gotten a letter. You know, my postcard could not have been picked. And then we would have not been able to go to the concert and we would have had to select another day. But as soon as we were, I knew we were going, I said, well, what are we waiting for? Let's just leave the next day. So we got a one-way TWA ticket. The fact that a 16-year-old yes. got, got yes. tickets... Yes. And went to London and Liverpool at the age of 16. And nobody, nobody, I mean, you people, like you said, not only did Catholic school, school, school girls not do those things, people just didn't do that in those days. Right? <laughs> How did you manage that? I mean, you, you must have been very grown up for your age. Well, you know, I had lived through a lot in my childhood. And I had to take on a lot of responsibilities and deal with a lot of stuff that most kids did not. And so I learned be um, very resourceful, you know, and very clever and stay out of the way and made sure that, you know, nobody knew where I was a lot of times because I didn't want to get hit by my mother or my father. Mm. So, and I was a pretty smart kid. I was. So obviously I figured out how to, how to, you know, survive all of it, you know, and come out. Okay. You know, alive street smarts, street smarts. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's amazing because, you know, even when you were, what, you were there 18 days, I believe. Um, 23. I'm 23, sorry, 20, 23 days. <laughs> Still, oh. uh, over three weeks. And, you know, the fact that you you, you, you got a flat, you, you had everything going to get an apartment. <laughs> I mean, to me, I was reading that and saying, I, you know, my daughter is 18 now. And I, I think she's street smart enough to do that. But two years ago, I would have been like, no way is she going anywhere near London by herself. Right. And, right. and you also met a lot of people like Tony alluded to in the beginning that were very kind and they could have taken advantage of two 16 year old girls. And 
it seems like your adventure there was was just blossoming uh, when you got handpicked to go home. Yeah. I mean, the people there were, you know, did you ever, first of all, did you ever meet up? I know you say in the book you, you didn't with one of the guys, but have you ever tried to look up, you know, the all the people that you met there for those 23 days? I, honestly, I wouldn't even know where to begin it's so long ago. And it's it's interesting that you asked that question because recently I was interviewed by the Liverpool Echo, mm. a, a new, big daily newspaper in Liverpool, about the boy, you know, that I had that I was with and hoping that somebody would read the story mm. and say, oh, hey, here's Mick, you know, or there's Mick. Hey, Janice, you know, I remember you. Right. Um, and that was the crux in, of the story, but it, it didn't happen. Hmm. So I wish. Yeah. What about Paul and Ringo? Have you have you ever tried to contact them and maybe meet them backstage at one of their shows? Because Lord knows Ringo is on tour every year and and Paul every few years he comes around. So have you ever tried that? Okay. well, when he came in 2016 to the one on one uh, concert, I did actually make it down a staircase to the actual stage. However, a teamster escorted me back up the stairs. Oh, <laughs> you had to oh, say man. you were with the show, Jan. I was <laughs> with the show. Well, I, back I, I tried that, but then somebody came over and he asked them, is she with the show? And they said, no. Oh. <laughs> and as he's escorting me up the stairs, oh. he said, you told me you were with the show. <laughs> no. Here's Bill Wyman when you need him. If Bill had been there, you no. uh, <laughs> I know. <laughs> Bill Wyman's like what, 88 now or something? Yeah. Uh, he's like oh, he's old now. You know? <laughs> he really is. Yeah. Really he is. Is. But he's still he's still going strong. He's yeah. incredible, really. Yeah, he's got a lot of uh, ventures going on at the moment, which yeah, is which is kind of cool. I, so I have to ask you though, did you you haven't we haven't mentioned Marty a lot, and Marty's a girl. Um, have you reached out at all? Have you tried? Has she has anything happened since the publication of the book? Nothing. Really? Nothing. You've never no one's you know, do you think you will ever hear from her? I doubt it. Do, do we know? Do we know not to be maudlin, but do we know Jen that she's still with us? We don't know anything. Okay. Okay. So it's. We're just gonna. We're just gonna leave it there. Sure. Got it. Sure. Sure. And I'm. I have to ask this, Jen. You, you know, after everything that happened, and I, you know, I was talking about what had happened, you know, with your faith. But what happened with your connection to the to the Beatles? Did it? Despite everything and all that went on, did you did you follow through to Sergeant Pepper? Did you follow through to were you still with them as as a band until the breakup or after that? Was it sort of something I, you talk about compartmentalizing it, sort of saying, OK, well, that was the experience that happened. But how did your connection to the Beatles stay or go? Well, my connection never left. They were always the backdrop to my life, you know, and still are. But my life took some pretty amazing twists and turns when I came to New York City and my life became I became an investigator. Yeah, ironic. Was, yeah. Right. And that became all absorbing for me. I mean, I was an investigator 24 mm. seven. So it was it was a wonderful time in my life. There's probably a book in that, Jan. Now that you've written the uh, first book. That's my next book. Yeah. Brilliant. Good. That's good to hear because that's there have to be 
what's the old line from the TV show? There, are, there are a million stories in the in the a city. Million stories in, in the naked city. In the naked city. There you go. And this is one of them. <laughs> this is one of them, right? Janice, I got a question concerning your your cover picture. Yeah. Where is it from? And I got to admit, this this picture could have started a couple of cults. I think. Um, so i'm just curious where the picture's from uh you're waving to the crowd with dark sunglasses those who haven't seen it uh little jerry jackie o there you go yes Um, everybody says it but i was not waving to the crowd looks like it i i I am waving to someone but not to a crowd so what happened was uh when it was decided we we got to decide if we wanted wanted to return back to Cleveland, uh, which we did. The, uh, the other option was just not very good at all. So um, the police had taken us to the United States Embassy where all the arrangements got squared away. And then the embassy was driving, an embassy limo was driving us to Heathrow Airport. And wow. they were driving along this, you know, windy path to try and avoid all the news people. I mean, they, we call them paparazzi now, but they were not called paparazzi then. But there was loads of paparazzi, like, everywhere. We couldn't get away from them. Mm. But this one photographer on the back of a motor scooter managed to get up to the side of the car, the side that I was on. He's calling out, Janice, Janice, and he's got his camera up. And I just turn and smile and wave, and he got that great shot. And where'd you get it? Was it published somewhere? Yeah, it was in the news a lot over there. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing stuff. I mean, it is kind of cool when you go through all the, the, when you go through the book, you do publish a lot of the uh, headlines and all that stuff. I mean, you know, I know not to sound like, you know, you're any egotistical at all because you sound very humble about this stuff. But I know if that happened to me, I'd have that plastered all over my walls. Because that's <laughs> gonna, it's kind of cool, even though, it, you know, even though there was like a man international manhunt out for you um, or in this case, a, a woman hunt. Uh, but quite frankly, you know, that's it must have been exciting, even though, you know, the end result was not what you wanted. Yeah. Well, we didn't even know that anybody was looking for us. Oh, okay. Yeah. Until we got to the police station. That's where Bobby said to me, uh, well, you know, there was, we had a pool going for you. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, we would all put money in the pool that would go to the first officer who found you. He said, so the officer that found you is going to get a lot of money. And then I said, well, what, I don't understand. What do you mean? He said, what do you mean? What do I mean? He said, don't you know that everybody was looking for you, including the Beatles? And I said, no, you know, why were they looking for us? He said, pulled out some stacks of newspapers and showed us, showed me anyway, the newspaper stories. He said, you two are VIPs. (laughs) And um, he said, we never had VIPs like you here before. We were just treated like royalty at the police station. It was incredible. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I would think that the thought did the thought come to you just with regards to school, just the truancy aspect that they were uh, going to sort of get get on to something with regards to that. I know. knew it was going to be bad when we right. got back. Right. That's all I knew. I but, knew it was going to be bad. But as you said, you were playing it, which was the, the most fascinating part. And this is something that, you know, is key to the book. 
you know, you were playing it with the thought that, you know what, maybe we won't have to go back. And, you know, and that was well, kind of a, you know, that's why we bought one way tickets, one way ticket, <laughs> one way ticket to ride, basically. <laughs> right. You know, it's, it's the, I still, when, when you're in the park and, or I think you were by the bridge or the tunnel, wherever you were, I'm sorry if I don't remember right now, but when you got picked up by the, the police, the Bobbies, I mean, the one Bobby, I, I often wonder, and I don't know if you still wonder, you know, there must have been other American girls over in London that, you know, that looked like you or how did they know? You know, I mean, I know there were pictures, but, uh, you know, you were it wasn't like you were, uh, you know, special, so to speak. You you just they picked you out and, and you just got dragged back, it, it, which is kind of weird that they just found you. Isn't it? Well, there was no pictures until oh. close to that time point. Yeah, they sent them over uh, wow. from Cleveland Heights, and then they posted them at every police station. And Scotland Yard, right? Scotland Yard, yeah. So the, eagle, the eagle eyes of the yard, you know, you can't get away from them. They were very sharp. <laughs> Great train, rob great train robbery. How's that going? Yeah. <laughs> no. By the way, uh, Janice, uh, you know, for those who don't know, this is a podcast, but we're also doing a Zoom cast. Uh, the oh. introducing the Beatles in the background. Is that an original one from 64? <laughs> uh, record behind you, or is that just a screen? Which one? Introducing the Beatles. Oh, that's my original. Yeah. That's the original right. one from, yeah. from 1964. Beautiful. That's mine. I love it. That's my favorite. Actually, my favorite album because really? I love every song. I, yeah, I know. Weird, right? No, no not at all. Everybody, at all. I, listen, every, three seconds, I can tell you my favorite song is Help. Four seconds later, I can say it's something else. So, you know, again, I could love introducing the Beatles and then I could love the White Album. So kudos I to you. I love that. That album is so, again, I think that goes back to the innocence of mm -hmm. everything. Yep. That album is so innocent. And yep. so pure and so full of energy and joy. And so there's nothing like, uh, you know, listen, the White Album's great, but it's got its issues. And But that is so joyful, like mm -hmm. most of their first few albums, that why wouldn't you just love it, right? Why I can't know. it be your favorite? Yeah. I love it. Well, love every I love song that. on it. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, you're going to be, you told us you're going to be at the International Beatle Week in August of 2022. Yes. Yes. Uh, which is amazing. We saw you at the fest. I hope you had a good time there in New York. Um, I want to just uh, let people know where to get the book. So I'm going to tell the title again. It's My Ticket to Ride, How I Ran Away to England to Meet the Beatles and Got Rock and Roll Band in Cleveland, A True Story from 1964 mm -hmm. by Janice Mitchell. Where can people get the book, Janice? Well, I think you can get it in any location on Amazon. Also, okay. Barnes & Noble. BarnesandNoble.com, and also uh, a website, MyTicketToRideBook.com, that takes you straight to my publisher, where you can get an autographed copy. Great, very and cool. Then I, and I then I have um, have okay. um, a web page, Janice-Mitchell.com. You can read more things. You can see a lot of pictures on there, and you can message me if you like. I'll, I'll mm -hmm. answer you too. We will put the uh, the link to that on our YouTube video for the show, right. uh, so you may watch out. You know, you get you'll get at least you'll get at least ten people from our listeners. I'm just kidding. Well, I also have to say, you know, it, you know the book's been out for a little while now. Uh, I I smell movie out of this book. Has there been any talk? Yes, there's been talk. 
Is it, oh, but is, right. it, is it real talk or is it just talk? It's real talk. Ah, Beautiful. Wow. You know who's going to play you? I don't know. You know who? I, did you see the movie yesterday? Yes, yes, we did. Sure. Girl, what's her name? The girlfriend? Oh, um, Lily James. Uh, yeah, she's my choice. Yes, if I really, could have but choice. she's British, but she does play American. I know. I think she's just perfect, but she she's actually my just opinion. played the. Uh, she just played Pamela Anderson in uh, in the Pam and Tommy story. So just, if she could play her. Pamela Anderson, she could play you. I love her. Yeah. Wow, that that's pretty cool. I we can't wait for that. That well, I have I have no say in it. I'm just saying that somebody asked me, and I said, yeah, I would love. She's my favorite because I can't think of anybody else I love more than her, as far as a young girl goes. Well, I'm I'm hoping that the movie comes out because I, I'll be honest, the book was fascinating, and and it's funny because I told people I said the Beatles aren't even in the book, but you just have to keep <laughs> reading it because it's so. It, it just grabs you in. And that's what I love about this. There's a million books. Well, I exaggerate, but there's thousands of books on the Beatles. There really are. And you know that, Jen. But yeah. when you, you know, your story is is yours it and it's just yes. truly yours. And I love that because yeah. it's not anybody else's except obviously Marty. But it's your story and nobody could take that away from you. And it's so different than all the other, as you say, maybe just informative books telling about you know, something, a fact or anything. But this is a great story. I really hope it does go to movie because I, I think it would make a really good movie. That's a great question, Rob, because I do think it would be fascinating. There's just one quick thought before we go, Jan. And I, I can't remember if you touched on this in the book, but your relationship with your, it would be your cousin. Mm. Did, did that, did that shift when you came back? Because you were, you were a different person, really. When you came after 23 days, you you came back a different person, really. There's no way you couldn't have been. And with what you went through when you got home and all of that. And it seemed that there is a little bit of a, there's a little bit of an empathy. There's a little bit of something that comes from your cousin in the last encounter that you talk about with her in the book. And how did that proceed going forward? Well, it was a mixed bag because the household was very different because now my uncle was gone. Of course. And uh, my cousin sort of took it upon herself to be, you know, the, the taskmaster. But yet something, I don't know, something, I think somehow she was kind of amused by what I did, which I found very confusing because she was so mean. <laughs> Can you be mean and amused at the same time? Yeah, I, obviously. Yeah, I guess so. Terrible. Yeah. Wow. wow. <laughs> so whatever wow. happened to the rest of the family before we go? I mean, do you know? Wait, which part? Is everybody gone now? I mean. Yeah. Yeah. They're gone. Everybody's gone. Wow. But as how, said, are, how, are you, how are you doing psychologically in terms of that? Do you harbor any ill feelings towards how you were handled as a kid or, or have you gotten way past that? Oh, I've gone way past that because I feel that what happened to me as a child it was meant to be, and I was able to use it, you know, to create a lot of, you know, interesting adventures for myself. And also, as far as my investigations go, I was pretty fearless, you know, and the kind of people that I would interview and the places I would go, you know, I was very highly independent always. I worked undercover, you know, and I was fearless about that. Wow. So I could go where, you know, no person wanted to go, and I was fine with it. 
Janice like, just said that she was with the show or she dressed up as the mother superior. Just to always. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, whatever you, whatever you got to do to get the job done. <laughs> well, the book is fantastic and we, we really appreciate the time. And uh, again, we'll, we'll put up all the links to where the, everybody can okay. get the book. Uh, and uh, it, it really has been a pleasure. So we, we really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I mean, I'm just, I'm just surprised and delighted to be here and I'm happy that you enjoyed the book and, yeah. and that you, um, you liked it. You know, I'm happy about that. Makes me very happy, you know, to know that. Oh, please, I, And I'm, I know our listeners are going to pick it up and enjoy it just as much as we did. Believe me. And we'll make sure we'll make sure they do. So uh, <laughs> anyway, so for uh, um, for free for all, this has been Mitch Axelrod, your, your moderator for tonight's show. Joining me, as they always do, have been Tony Trigardo. Night, folks. And Rob Leonard. Have a good day, everyone. Thank and you, guys. author Jen Mitchell. It's been a pleasure. We really appreciate it. Take care. Thank you. You take Bye-bye. care. You Thank too. Thank you, Jeff. Fab Four Free For All was edited and produced by Tony Chiguardo at Word of Mouth Studios in Westbury, New York. The opening and closing theme is My Dolly by the band The Badge, featuring longtime listener Jeff Slate, available on its debut album Digital Retro and recent Best Of compilation, as well as from the Fab Four Free For All website. Thanks for listening to Fab Four Free For All.